Good morning, this is Sister Lisa coming to you from the Ill, the Edwin Elder Library, and today we're going to be doing Day 16 out of the Meeting God in Holy Places, a devotional journey by F. Lagarde Smith book, and it's chapter 16, The Battle is the Lord's, 1 Samuel 17, 47. Megiddo, Struggle. I stood on the easternmost edge of the tell at Megiddo and looked slightly north across the plain of El Stradlon toward Mount Tabor. Then I turned to look south and east toward Mount Geboa and the Jezreel Valley. As if viewing history on a wide screen, I could see in my mind's eye scores of famous Old Testament battles that took place in this ancient crossroads of civilization. Civilization. One battle that stands out pitted Barak against Caesarea. Shamed by Deborah, Barak had swooped down from Mount Tabor to fight the Canaanites. If you look intently enough, you can almost see Caesarea's 900 iron chariots and all his men being rooted by Barak's foot soldiers. But of course, it was left to a woman, Jael, to drive the tent peg through Caesarea's temple. Then there was the battle between Israel's king Jehu and Ahazai, king of Judah. The, nec- the text says that after being mortally wounded, Ahazai escaped to Medado and died there. And there was the battle which probably never should have taken place. While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt went up to Karkamish to help the king of Assyria. Showing more bravery than good sense, King Josiah marched out to engage him. When Necho made a genuine attempt to avoid battle, Josiah disguised himself, went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo, and ended up getting himself killed by Necho's archers. Strategically located at the intersection of the Ardeal Roads of Antiquity, Megiddo guarded the vital Aron Pass along what the Romans called the Vira Maris, or Highway of the Sea. My underpowered rental car huffed and puffed to climb over the narrow pass. It was that road which connected Egypt to the south with Assyria and Mesopotamia in the north and east. Whenever Egypt wanted to go north or Assyria wanted to come south, you could count on trouble along the way. For that reason, King Solomon made Megiddo one of his chariot cities, as did King Ahab, who, like Hezekiah, also constructed an ingenious water supply, the tunnel of which you can still walk through today. In fact, excavations reveal some 25 different levels of occupation going back to 3500 BC. I sat down on a rock to rest and reflect. In a way, Megiddo was symbolic of my own life. Like Megiddo, I too have found myself in a perennial state of struggle and inner conflict. Spiritual struggle, spiritual conflict. In fact, it did not escape me that my life was layered in much the same way as the tale at Megiddo. Each layer represented different struggles I have faced over the years. Just when I have conquered one area of my life, I have been conquered by yet another. Or, put it more positively, with each defeat I have rebounded to build upon that experience, even if I have later found myself having to rebuild all over again. On that day, in that place, I couldn't help but think more deeply than ever about something that has always been curious to me. Why does the Old Testament have so many passages devoted to battles and war and fighting? Chapter after chapter, page after page is filled with battle reports, as if from a war correspondent. After a while, you get the idea that Israel spent more time fighting than working or worshiping. Perhaps God is trying to tell us that war is an unacceptable means of resolving conflict. 
And yet there were many times in the Old Testament when it was God himself who ordered Israel into battle, and even to kill women and children. For the most part, I've managed to accept that seeming inconsistency with the thought that God was teaching Israel the tough lesson of uncompromising obedience. Perhaps wiping out all possible potential for pagan influence was the only way. Still, I can't help but think that there is something more I'm supposed to learn from the endless battles I read about. Could it be that God is trying to show me how he regards my own struggles in the spiritual arena? I wonder if I'm not supposed to learn from Barak something about what it means to be a morally pure man. Remember, it took a morally conscious woman to remind Barak of his responsibilities before God. How many times as a man have I made it a woman's responsibility to draw the moral line? I wonder too, if I'm not supposed to learn something from King Ahaziah, who died in battle for little more reason than that he had chosen the wrong friends. He had gone out to fight King Jehu only because he happened to be hanging around with Joram, son of the wicked Jezebel. Could that have been part of my problem over the years, choosing the wrong friends? Have I so easily forgotten what Paul said about bad company, corrupting good character? And I suspect the lesson from King Josiah is all too obvious. He thought he had protected himself in battle by putting on a disguise. I've been there too, going out into the world, trying to pretend I was someone other than who I am. The more I read the scriptures, the more closely I identify with all the language of struggle and battle, especially when Peter talks about abstaining from sinful desires, which war against your soul. There is a war going on, isn't there? More times than I want to admit, I know exactly what Paul was talking about when he anguished. I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Just when you think you have committed yourself to purity of thought and action, just when you think you've built yourself a mental ghetto to, to guard that vital passage between you and the world, all of a sudden the enemy sneaks in and you're doing battle all over again. Those are the times when I feel a certain kinship with the Reubenites and Gadites of whom it was said. They cried out to God during the battle. He answered their prayers because they trusted in him. At those times, my prayers have been the prayers of the psalmist. All my enemies are before you. And again, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? God knows the enemies I'm fighting and he cares. More than just caring, the good news is that in all my battles, God is on my side. From the psalmist comes the assurance that with God, we will gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. If I have experienced defeat, praise God, I've also known victory. In this wondrous revelation, in his wondrous revelation, John sees a vision of God's ultimate judgment on mankind, which through the use of the word Armageddon, he associates with the historic battleground of Megiddo. The scene he describes is a harvest of the earth upon which God's wrath is imposed. With the pouring out of seven terrifying bowls comes a sense of climatic finality in which God's righteousness and holiness are manifested through a cleansing of sin from the world. Positioned at the center of the internal conflict, Armageddon symbolizes all the battles between good and evil, past, present, and future. In the closing act of this section of Revelation, Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and hundred-pound hailstones are followed by a loud voice from the heavenly throne, saying, It is done. One can hardly miss the obvious parallel between this scene and that awful hour of crucifixion, when the whole of heaven and earth shook at Jesus' own words. It is finished. The message of Armageddon is the good news that the outcome of the battle between good and evil is no longer in doubt. Ours is the victory. Through the death of him who was slain for the sins of the world, both sin and death have been conquered once and for all. If that thought doesn't put a praise on your lips, nothing will. 
Yet the personal message of Armageddon has more to do with the battles which you and I will fight this very day than with the final battle at the end of time. Final doesn't mean that the struggle is over or that we don't have to keep fighting either the world from without or the enemy from within. It simply means that we need not get above hope for the outcome is already assured. Good has already triumphed. Evil has already been defeated. Satan can't beat us. On a rock at Megiddo, in the solitude of my thoughts, I sat at a table of peace, a table that had been specially prepared for me in the presence of all my enemies. And when my, re- my reverier, R-E-V-E-R-I-E, was over, I put on my armor, took renewed courage, and launched out once again into the fray. But this time, walking closer than ever to the one who has already fought the greatest battle ever, and won. Oh my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Charles Monroe. But that's true. We do, we fight battles daily. And before I thought, I've thought about this before, about how we kind of seem to go through cycles. It seems like we get on one train of thought. Or if you keep journals or old calendars and stuff around, pick up some from years ago when it's like, you have the same thoughts and the same ambitions as you have now. You have the same resolutions and goals. You want to get closer to God. You want to lose weight, get in shape, um, organize your house, get rid of clutter, uh, fix your hair nicer, take more take more um, caution about how you look, your outward appearance, because um, um, you just want to look nice, especially in pictures. And around here, we're always snapping pictures and um or on the webcam or something, you know, taking pictures. and but, it's, but then we go back to our old habits. We start eating the junk foods again. We start not exercising as much. Or we start laying things around and getting out of organization again. We might determine to start reading a lot of books. And we do for a while and then we stop because, well, discipline takes time. <laughs> it takes time and it takes also, it takes what I just said, discipline. You have to discipline. You got to get your mind stayed on God and focus. That's why it's very important to prioritize. If you always put God first in your day, then at the end of the day, you're not going to be too tired to pray because you've already prayed in the morning, and you probably be have enough strength to pray again because you have that energy that that um, you just have more. You have more oomph about your day if you put God first. So that's why I like to do these devotions early in the morning. And reading this book, it makes the Bible come more alive because this man has actually been to the places that we read about in the Bible. Makes it, you know, it makes more sense to us when we kind of have a feeling about how these places were. If you ever get to go yourself, go to Israel. I've never been, but if I ever get the chance, I know my husband had talked about us going. Probably, I probably won't in real life, but you never know. But in fact, this book, though, is just so, it's so... It's inspiring me. I hope it's inspiring you. Well, you have a great day, and let's let the Lord fight our battles. Put on the whole armor of God, and let's keep on pointing others to the cross because that's what it's about. God bless you, and keep looking up. Jesus is coming soon. Bye-bye.